When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rachel Cruz is a two-time number one national best-selling author. She's a financial expert and host of The Rachel Cruz Show. Rachel serves at Ramsey Solutions where she teaches how to budget, how to avoid debt, and win with money at any stage in life. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on Takeaways and and helping us think about uh, this really important subject. Uh, many people know, uh, but some people don't know that Dave Ramsey is your dad, and uh, I, I just, I just, it makes me laugh to think of what it must have been like growing up under his financial roof. Um, you know, some people, some people think, feel bad for for my kids. They think you're Kirk Cameron's kids. Like you must not have been able to do anything bad. I'm sure he was the sin police 24 seven or something like that. <laughs> so, what was it like for you? Did did you get an allowance, or were, was it just clamped down all the time? No. You know what? It's funny because people do. They have all these assumptions, and they think we had you know, mutual fund birthday parties and like (laughs) (laughs) budget camps and stuff, right? That we were like obsessed with money. And thank the Lord that was not the case. I mean, they really did a great job, obviously teaching us how money works, but they really, really did take it in the ebb and flow of life. It was never this unorganic summit of the living room conversation about investments and all that. Right. No, it was it was really in the ebb and flow of life. Lots of grace. And so honestly, they were not as hardcore as people probably think they were. You you just had to start an emergency fund at two and a half years old. Yeah, right? that, <laughs> that's right. But other than that, to, everything was normal. To save and nothing all that. nothing <laughs> weird to see here. Hey, wh- <laughs> Rachel, wh- of all the things that your dad has taught you, is there is there one most important financial principle that you think he's taught you? You know, one thing that I feel like is sort of different in our space when we talk about money, because so much of it is about like kind of the numbers and the cents and, you know, the dollars, right. all of that. But generosity was always huge. Like mom and dad modeled that, number one, really well. But number two, it's such a core part of our teaching because we want people to win with money, but not just win with money just to sit there and just gather more stuff, mm. but truly to let your cup overflow and to be generous. Because there's a level of joy that you have in life when you are giving. And so for me... Learning that with money was such a tactical lesson. But honestly, Kirk, I'm like, I look now and I'm like, when you give, you become more selfless, right? Versus selfish. And when you're selfless, I think you're just, for me, I'm a, I'm a better mom. I'm a better wife. I'm I'm a better team member at work. So there's, there's something yes. in you that changes when you give. But learning to even give money from a young age... I think kind of helped with that. So I'd say the generosity piece was really big and still is in my life. Rachel, do you think that being generous with money, regardless of how much money you have to give, I may have a lot, I may have a little, but if I'm generous with it to help other people, does that help take away the fear of not having money? Because that sounds counterintuitive. If I give it away, I have less, but somehow I feel like it takes away the fear about money when I'm not clutching it for dear life. A hundred percent, yes. And even that visual you're doing with your fist, I'm like, that's it. Like when people, we try to control and do what we can and we sit there and almost nickel and dime ourselves to death because we want every little thing to be right. 
But it's amazing when you open your hands. There's a level of trust that you're do that you're giving God, honestly, to say, "Hey, I'm going to give where I'm at." Um, and, and, and something happens in you, like right, something changes in you when you are giving. And so for me, that generosity piece is huge. And, and no matter where you are, so even if you are paycheck to paycheck, we still teach. When you budget, that giving needs to be at the top, even if it's a little bit, because people believe the lie. Well, once I have more money, then I'll be able to give. But it's not a math issue. It's really a heart issue. And so learning that habit, no matter where you are, will stay with you. So hopefully when you do get out of debt and build an emergency fund and invest and you start to build wealth and have traction with your money, the generosity piece is already there because you've already worked on it. I'm so glad that you're talking about this. And this is such an important and appropriate subject to be talking about. God loves a cheerful giver. And if we're giving to those who, uh, and to help them meet their needs, God says that, that we're not going to find ourselves without help in our day of need because God is faithful and we're never gonna outgive God. So it's a principle that is important and appropriate. I'm so glad we're talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and scripture talks about that. We are the managers. We are stewards of what he's given us. And so when we talk about giving to your point, I'm like, it's not just writing a check to who knows where, whoever's asking. I tell people, even when you're giving, to be as diligent with your giving as you are your investing. Look to see where you're giving. Pull yeah. up the financials, meet with the organization. I mean, do your due diligence because it's God's, it's God's money yes. that you're dealing with. You're managing it for him. So, so manage it well and wisely. So Rachel, what are the most common problems people have with their finances today in America? I think number one always is that they're just not intentional, which kind of equals the budget in my mind. You know, we live this kind of in this mindset in our culture where it's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to just do what feels good and I work hard, so I deserve this. and I'm just kind of going to go with the flow. But when you're not diligent and you're not saying, hey, I'm going to be very specific and very intentional with my paycheck, it does not go as far. And so even now, you know, even nowadays when inflation's, you know, skyrocketed, all of this that's going on in the world, you have to be so, so intentional with your money. You have to have a plan. You know, people that win in anything in life, it's not like they just look up one day and they're like, oh yeah, I'm heading to the Super Bowl. You know, if you're, if you're a football player and you're heading there, it didn't just happen. There's practice, there's preparation, there's a plan. You know where you're going and you need to do the same with your money. So the budget, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes people don't do. And because they think it's like, oh, it's, it's cheap or it's constrictive. I can't have any fun. I want to enjoy my money. But I look at a budget really as just permission to spend. That you have a plan and it's like, okay, I can go and buy this because it's in the line item. And I'm not questioning. I'm not stressed. I'm not thinking, is this too much? Is this Okay you have a plan in place. So the budget is, is huge for people starting out. People struggle with debt. How can I possibly save and have an emergency fund and be generous when I'm in the hole? Well, number one, stop going into it, which kind of sounds like common sense, but for real, there, there has to be this level uh, inside of you that you say, okay, I'm done. I'm sick and tired of working, earning a paycheck, and it's going out 18 different directions. And I get to the end of the month and I have nothing. I have nothing. I don't have the ability. I don't feel like to give or I don't have the ability to invest. I don't have any margin because literally all of my money is just leaving. And so when scripture talks about that the borrower is slave to the lender, that's a very true statement because when you borrow money from mm. someone, your options are limited, your freedom is limited. And so the importance of becoming debt-free is, is huge because it frees up your largest wealth-building tool, which is your income. So again, it is hard to win with money when you have no money because it's going back out to 18 different banks and car loans and student loans and all of that. So getting out of debt and working um, during that season of life is so important. And that will be a season of sacrifice. We teach that a lot, that the budget is going to feel really squeezed out because 
you want to get out of debt as quickly as possible to, again, free up your income to, to then be able to give and to save. What you're saying feels like like air to a suffocating person or water to somebody who's been stranded in the in the desert. They're like, yes, I need to get out of debt. This is this is killing us, uh, and and the budget is what's going to help them to have a plan on how to get out of debt. Uh, what about gas prices? They're soaring. I live in California. Uh, I can go find, you know, six dollars plus a gallon right up the street from me. Is there a way to save on gas money? There's things you can do, like obviously condense all of your errands. If you know if you're going out to different places to think, okay, where can I carpool? Can I can I go and say I'm going to go out once versus going back out three different times during the day? I mean, there's th- choices like that, but I think the overall principle there is that you have to be able to say, okay, my expenses are going up, and we know that we know this because of inflation, everything going on, and to know here my budget is going to look different today than it did November of 21. And again, it's a hard reality for a lot of Americans. Americans are seeing uh, an increase of 300 to $600 a month going on. So that's why it's almost even that much more important to budget and to be really specific with where your money's going. Because right now you may not be able to go and waste money and you may not be able to go and be like, oh yeah, the, the, the luxuries I was able to do I can't do right now because my basic needs are not being covered. And so there's yeah. maybe a season of sacrifice until all this gets straightened out. But uh, it, but it's really difficult. And it's been really, really hard on people, um, Kirk, that I've been talking to. And so, again, that diligence and having a plan is going to be your safety net versus floating through this with fear. Rachel, what's more important, establishing an emergency fund or putting money away for retirement? The emergency fund. So I want you to first save up a $1,000 emergency fund. Like this is the first thing you're going to do. And so this could be money that you already have saved or maybe you don't have it. And you're thinking, okay, looking at the budget, where can I cut? Where can I earn extra money? That $1,000 starter emergency fund is key. And then I want you to get out of debt by listing all of your debts, smallest to largest, regardless of the interest rate, pay minimum payments on everything and pay off the smallest debt first. Then once you're debt free, then you're going to save up a fully funded emergency fund of three to six months worth of expenses. And so these three steps, this is big. And again, I want you to pause retirement. I want you to stop doing everything and do this because because we have such a shaky financial foundation for so many people. And you're trying to do, you know, eight different things and fund kids college and save for retirement and pay off the house and, right. and, and keep up with the, with the minimum payments. So just focusing on those three steps one at a time is going to really give you this, this level of, of, of fresh air, maybe for the first time in a long time. Because if you have no debt, and you don't owe anyone anything except for your mortgage, and you have three to six months worth of expenses saved in the bank, and it's just there for emergencies, you make different choices in your life. If another pandemic hits, you're going you're gonna to go through that so much, so differently than you would if you are living paycheck to paycheck with no savings. So that is urgent, those three steps, first and foremost. And then we'll press play on retirement. And so then 15% of your income should go into retirement. So 401k, 403b, a Roth IRA, all of that. So you focus on that because you actually will have the money then, right? If you have no payments from debt to actually fund that and get that and get that ball rolling faster. From a biblical perspective, should we ever feel guilty about storing up for retirement? Because I can make a case both ways. I could say, well, that's great. I'm planning for the future. Uh, Joseph did that in Egypt. We planned for the future famine that's coming. But then there was the man that stored up all his goods in these barns. And the Lord said, you fool, tonight your, your life's going to be given, uh, taken from you. And I know pastors who would say, look, there's people who are starving now. They need this, these resources now. How selfish of me to store up for someday when I, when I need this a decade from now. 
Sure. Well, Proverbs also says, in the house of the wise, there's stores of choice food and oil. A foolish man devours all he has. There is something to be said absolutely about the generosity piece. And I think, you know, we we need to be doing that. That's why giving should be part of all of this. But you have to take care of your own household first or you're worse than an unbeliever, also the Old Testament says. So mm-hmm. so being diligent. And, and again, it's all about your motivation too, Kirk, of, of saying, okay, how am I setting myself up well to be wise with, again, the resources God has given me? And I'm doing this not out of a grateful heart or thinking that this money or this plan is going to save me. It's going to give me contentment. It's going to give me joy. None of that is true. No amount of money or stuff is going to give you that. And so there's a, a maturity of faith that you have to have to really balance these things and say, okay, God, here's the time and place you've put me. And I want to manage this well. I want to change my family tree. And in order to do that, I need to have a level of stability. So then again, the outflow of my cup can overrun and I can even help people more. I can help more people and be more generous. This is awesome. Rachel, thank you for helping us think through this. When we come back, We'll dig beneath the how and examine the why we handle money the way that we do. I think you're going to find this uh, a very worthwhile investment of your time. Don't go away. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're back with Rachel Cruz talking about the way we manage our money. Now, in this segment, we're discussing why we handle money the way that we do and learning how to take control of our finances. Uh, Rachel Cruz covers this extensively in her book, Know Yourself, Know Your Money. Uh, Rachel, uh, we were just laughing because our our kids, um, they're all about knowing themselves, but they want to know our money, not their money. They want to know all about our money and uh, just how far they can make it go. Why is it important to know yourself in order to know your money? Well, personal finance, it's really 80% behavior. It's only 20% head knowledge. So when you look at common sense ways of living with money and biblical ways of living with money, it's not this like you have to have this master's degree in finance to understand it. It's really not that complicated. It's really easy to know. But the big bulk of winning with money is your behavior. It's actually doing it. And it's actually saying, okay, I'm going to change the way I've been handling my money I'm going to do something different. And that's really uncomfortable. That's really hard for people. People will stay in the same cycle in anything in life, even if it's bad, because it's just comfortable. It's what they know. They already know the outcome and it just feels good. It feels familiar. So to break that and to do something different is huge. You talk about four different types of money classrooms. I think that's really interesting. Can you explain what are those classrooms and how do they impact us? Sure. Well, your your classroom was really your home growing up, right? And that's where you learn in your childhood every lesson that you take into adulthood. It's like, okay, you know, some of the lessons are great. Some lessons you're like, nope, I'm going to leave that with mom and dad and I'm going to do something different. But you learn life there in your household. And so within that, and when it comes to money, money's really communicated in two ways in a house. It's communicated verbally and then it's communicated emotionally. And so when I was writing this book, I was trying to like kind of pair it all together, honestly. And I was like, okay, you know, some, some households, it was verbally talked about. It was an open communication when it comes to money. And then some of it was closed, some households where they never talked about money. And in the emotional span, it's like, okay, for some people it was stress. 
and anxiety-ridden and, and fights, and you can just feel the tension. And for others, it was a very free subject. So when I was writing the book, I was like, oh my gosh, these, these two things, it almost like makes this quadrant. I was like, oh God, you gave me a graph. Thank you so much. This <laughs> graph makes so much sense of how money's communicated. So, so that first money classroom is the anxious money classroom. And this is where it's verbally closed. Your household growing up did not talk about money. And emotionally, it was stressed. So you feel this level of anxiety. Again, it's not talked about, but you can feel it. And the second, it's a verbally closed home, but it's very free. So it's kind of that unaware money classroom. And then you have verbally open. So money is talked about, uh, but it still is kind of stressed. So it's that unstable feeling because maybe there's yelling and there's fights. So you hear about it, but it's a stressful environment. And then that fourth is is the, the secure money classroom where money's talked about openly and it's a very calm uh, environment emotionally. So no matter which one you kind of grew up in, I, I try to take the readers to that fourth money classroom, especially if you have a current family of your own, if you have kids and you're married, to really kind of um, cultivate that that spirit. And you don't have to have a lot of money to be in that classroom number four of that secure money classroom, but you have to have the ability to say, okay, we have a plan. We know what we're doing. So that creates that stress level to go down. So it's not stressful. It's more calm. And you are willing to talk about it. You know, parents, you know, even even two decades ago, they didn't want to talk about sex. They didn't want to talk about politics. They didn't want to talk about money. It just wasn't talked about. And so learning to teach your kids and to say, hey, this is an okay conversation for us to have. We're going to talk about this subject. And, and having that open dialogue, I think, is just, it's huge. What happens when one spouse is the maker of the money and the other spouse is the primary spender of the money? Um, how does that play out? And how can they work well together? Well, I would even say I would break even those two apart that it's not always the person that makes the money is the saver. Sometimes the person that makes the money is the spender. And then you have the spouse at home who's sitting there with a lot of fear thinking, Are, what's going on with the money? I feel out of control. You know, I yeah. think like we shouldn't be doing this, right? So like it, it, the personalities are so different. So yeah, money and marriage. We probably could have a whole other show, Kirk, on the subject. On money it, and marriage. It's huge. Oh, it's huge. It's one of the leading causes of divorce in America today. So for spouses, if you are married, my plea to you is to work together. And I'm going to go back to that tactical word, the budget. But honestly, sitting down and agreeing on where your money's going, you're agreeing on so much more than just money. You are agreeing on your goals in life as a couple. You're agreeing on your dreams, where you guys want to go as a family. You're agreeing on some of the fears that you feel inside of you. All of that comes out when you're talking about money and you're even just talking about the budget. So getting on the same page is big. And then my second piece of advice would be, that you have to embrace your differences, okay? A spender and a saver, neither is right or wrong. They are different. Now, the extremes of both can be very unhealthy. A saver can become a hoarder and a control freak. The spender could just spend and, you know, they're broke, right? They like they, they just spend all the money. So, so the extremes are not healthy, but finding that medium ground is beautiful. So actually, in my marriage, I'm the spender. I, and I teach this stuff every day, but I'm more of the natural spender. I love spending money. And my husband is hardcore saver, uh, he he has his Excel sheet with all with everything. I mean, he's just he's more of that nerd in it. And so for us, I'm like I learned so much of his wisdom and discernment of his delayed gratification and watching him process. And then I laugh because I'm like I give him a life. Like he actually enjoys life because I make I make us go out and do fun adventures and we spend money and we enjoy life. So so there's a beauty in both, but embracing those differences is really really important. And and also having that humility to say hey. The way I'm doing it may not be 100% right. Like I want to, you know, you're my teammate. You're my partner in life. 
So I want to learn from you. And there's a level of humility there that, that couples really need to have. This is so good. I need to get your book. And I can think of several people <laughs> that I want to give it to as well. Talk about the different types of fears that people have surrounding money. So I talk about six different money fears in the book. But I'd say the, the primary one that comes up constantly um, is, is just the fear of the unknown. It's this idea, am I going to be okay if something happens? Are we going to be okay if someone loses a job? Are we going to be okay if there's a medical emergency? And so there's there's this level of stability that a lot of people long for, but because of possibly a situation of living paycheck to paycheck or not having savings, not having these things, there is that fear that, yeah, if something does happen, what do I do? Um, and so really walking through the process of, of getting your money under control and actually facing, hey, here's where we're at. Here is how much debt we have. Here is our income. Here's where it's going. A lot of those facts will honestly help that anxiety level of, oh gosh, are we going to be okay? There's that fear. There's the fear of, of external forces, that things you just can't control. And I feel like that's been huge the last two years of our life. You know, a lot of people sit there and wring For their sure. hands and it's like, we can't, we can't control things that are coming out of Washington always. We can't control inflation. Like we can't control these things. And so that, that level of fear is huge. And so being able to say, okay, I need to focus on the things I can control. Right. What can I, con what can I control? The, when my money hits my bank account from my income, that's my money sitting in the account. What do I do with it? You can control that. You can control your work ethic. You can control the people you hang around, right? There's things in our life we can control, but we've been in a season where I feel like there's been a lot of fear on things that we just can't control. That is so important to talk about. Uh, I, I've found that I've needed a personal strategy every morning when I wake up because there's so many things that are outside of my control and out, it's seemingly out of control. Yet as a Christian, I've got a whole different framework to understand that, uh, whether it's money or health, the unknowns relationally, financially. Um, if I can savor the things today and say, thank you, God, for what I have and, and, and underline the things that I know are true and then make as much as I can of the work opportunities and the relationships that God's given me control over and then let go of the stuff I can't control and then celebrate that behind the curtain, God is pulling the strings and he's making all things work together for good for those who love him. Uh, he's got a story that he's writing and uh, it's a good story and we have the privilege of being in the middle of it. And some chapters are just a nail biter where we think, oh no, the ship is going down. But that's where heroes and heroines are, are made. And, and our job is to stay faithful. Uh, so I, 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 I love all of these principles in your book. I've got more questions for you though. Um, what's what some basic strategies people can begin to do with regard to paying off their debt? Do they start with the big debt? Do they start with the small debt? Do they just save up enough until they can pay off their car? Uh, are some debts okay to have? Like, what about a mortgage? The one type of debt, yeah, that I'm, I will not yell at you for <laughs> is a mortgage. So that, that I'm like, okay, that's a pass. But a, I mean, I would say a 15-year fixed rate. And for your monthly take-home, your monthly payment, mortgage payment being no more than 25 to 30% of your take-home pay. So that's kind of the parameters around the mortgage. But yeah, everything else, really, when it comes to paying off debt, there's two strategies people use. They use what they call the debt avalanche, where they get out, where they pay off the highest interest rate first. And then there's the debt snowball, where you pay off the smallest debt first. And so the highest interest rate, yeah, that makes sense mathematically. But like we said earlier, it's not always math that's the problem. It's actually our behavior. Because if we were doing math, we wouldn't be in debt in the first place. And so yeah, right. being able to say, okay, getting that quick win of this paying off the smallest debt is huge. Because Kirk, like there's so much hopelessness when it comes to money. There's a lot of shame. 
a lot of embarrassment, a lot of regret because people are sitting there thinking, well, Rachel, I am that person living paycheck to paycheck and we don't have savings. That's us. And so when it comes to that point where, man, it is like you are defeated, you have to have an injection of hope. That is a that is a human mm. quality. We have to have hope and believe that things can change, that we have the ability to make decisions in our life to change the outcome of our life. And we're not stuck in this perpetual wheel. And so by paying off that smallest debt first, again, mathematically, it wouldn't be correct, but it gives you something like even if it's a $500 credit card bill that you've been carrying around month to month, like paying it off, it does something to you. It's like, okay, wow, that's gone. Like we paid it off. It's over. Okay, let's move to the next one and the next one and the next one. And so you find not only mathematically does your does your money snowball? Because if you don't have, you know, the smallest debt or the second smallest debt or the third smallest debt, those minimum payments now are rolling over to the other debt. So you're you're snowballing mathematically your money, but also it's that injection of hope and to say, wow, we really can do this. So we find people doing this are getting completely out of debt except for their house in 18 to 24 months. And this is sacrifice, right? Like this is we're cutting cable. We're not going shopping. We're not going on vacation. We're doing nothing but putting all of our money towards getting out of debt because there is a freedom. Like when you get out of debt, not only mathematically are you free, but there, I mean, you sleep at night. You know, you're not waking up at 2 a.m. running numbers in your head, making sure you can pay all the bills. Like none of that is there. It is such freedom and it and it's an amazing thing. And that's when that's one part of my job I love so much because that changes your family tree. That is when it says a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Like you're mm-hmm. able to do these things for your kids that they don't have to go through possibly the pain that you went through. And that's my story. My parents filed bankruptcy the year I was born. So I literally was born into this mess financially. And because of my parents' example and what they've chosen to do, honestly, my whole life is different. And not because I'm Dave Ramsey's daughter, but because I had parents in a home teaching us God's ways of handling money. And so there is there is a legacy change in this simple idea of completely of becoming completely debt-free. And it's, it's, I love it. It's huge. I love the picture of freedom that you're painting. And the Bible paints a distinction between riches and genuine wealth. And I know that that's woven throughout your book as well. And, and, and God tells us that riches can fly away like a bird. It's here today and phew, it's, it's, it's gone and you can't see it anymore. There's no better time than now to examine how we interact with money and how to learn practical ways to manage it well. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.